We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, if every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. It was going to be the salvage of a lifetime. The year was 1996 and George Tullock and his crew were skimming the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean two and a half miles from the surface. All of a sudden they came across some weird stuff. Eyewear, dishware, kitchenware, metal objects, even larger metal objects. And then they came across the hull of the Titanic. 84 years earlier, they said it was unthinkable that it would be sinkable, but then the unthinkable happened and it did sink. And it rested there at the bottom of the Atlantic until that day in 1996. So George got his crew and all the equipment together and they, they raised the, 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 the Titanic to the surface of the Atlantic and at that time, a huge windstorm blew in. And when it blew in, it broke the equipment and the Titanic sank again, what everyone would thought would be its eternal resting place. Well, not to be deterred, George was a very convicted man. He got into his submarine, piloted down to the bottom, and with a, a robotic arm attached a big piece of metal to the side that said, I'll come back, George Tullock, 1996. It would take him two years of working hard to get all the resources together, the right crews, the right equipment, and two years later in 1998, sure enough, he was true to his word, and he raised the hull of the Titanic, and with that, he shows us a character trait we all need in our lives. That character trait is called conviction, and conviction is so important we're in the, when we are in the waiting room called life. When we're waiting for God to work in our lives, whether it's in our personal lives, with our health, our professional lives, with our careers, with our families, whatever the case may be, we need to have conviction to wait well. In fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. In order to wait well, we need to wait forward. In order to wait well, we need to wait forward. What do I mean by wait forward? Wait forward means that we need to wait with anticipation that God is going to act, that God is who he says he is, that he is a God of promises and a God who is sovereign over all of our situations, that he will work for his good and perfect will. That's what we're going to be talking 
about today as we hit week six of our series called Jesus is the Subject. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart the book of Mark. Today we're going to be hanging out in Mark chapter five. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 43. So let me set the scene for what's going on as you turn to verses 21 through 43, Mark 5. Okay, for those of you who have been attending for the past six weeks, uh, you know that Mark is most likely the first gospel of the four gospels written, and it's written by a guy named Mark, actually John Mark. Pastor Bob went into that in week one. He is Peter's scribe, more or less, because the book just screams of Peter. It's short and to the point. It's muscular. It's all about power. And that's important because in the book of Mark, you're not going to find a whole lot of the Hebrew traditions. What you're going to find in the book of Mark is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, who has the power of God. And that's because Mark's audience were really Roman unbelievers. And unbelievers in Rome, well, they respected one thing and one thing only, and that's power. So he emphasizes that throughout the entire book. Our story today picks up most likely in the the end of Jesus' first year of his three-year ministry more than 2,000 years ago. Now, Jesus has taken his disciples over across the Sea of Galilee to a place called the Gadarenes or Gerasenes, depending on what your translation is. And they're not met with open arms. In fact, he only heals a, a demoniac, a guy that has just legions of demons in him, and then he's railroaded out of town. He's sent across back to the Sea of Galilee, and he ends back at his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is where he's healed a a Roman centurion servant. It's the same place in which he's healed the paralytic and the same place in which he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So he's welcomed openly by crowds in Capernaum because they want to see a magic act. Now, There are three characters in our story today, three main characters. The first one is Jesus. Jesus is the subject. He always has to be the main character of any preaching that we do here at Cornwall. Otherwise, our preaching is flat. Second character is a guy named Jairus. In Greek, it's Jairus. Jairus is is a synagogue ruler, and his daughter is sick. She's given him happiness for 12 years. And he's juxtaposed with our third character, a very courageous but anonymous bleeding woman who's had an affliction that's given her nothing but sorrow for 12 years. They both have hope in one man, Jesus. Ready to go? Okay, remember our main point. In order to wait well, we have to wait what? Wait forward. Okay, here we go. Mark 5, verses 21 through 23. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, A large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. Jairus is gripped with fear because his daughter is gripped by the angel of death. And he comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus at great risk. He's a synagogue official. Let's talk about that. That means he's a man of power, wealth, and influence. That also means as a synagogue official, he'd be in charge of running the worship in the synagogue. Most of the synagogues at that time had schools, so he'd be overseeing the school. He'd also be ensure, he would ensure that the, the building and the facilities were running well. And he most likely was friends with the Pharisees, the, the, the ruling elite of the time for the, the religious authority. And that's a problem because they were enemies of Jesus. 
He most likely has seen Jesus do some healing, and he comes to Jesus. He wanted healing. He needed Jesus. Look what happens, verse 24. And he, Jesus, went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So things seem to be going well for our man Jairus. He's thinking, okay, I got Jesus. I'm going to take him over to my house. He's going to heal my daughter. I'll deal with the Pharisees later. We'll have him over. We'll have a few drinks. We'll kick back, have a few laughs. Everything will be smooth. Everything will be fine. And then there's a plot twist. Something happens that Jairus didn't expect. Verses 25 and 26. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Things are going well for Jairus. And then there's an interruption. It's like this this anonymous bleeding woman cuts in line in front of him. Well, let's talk about her because she's in a world of hurt. She's got a a constant menstruation issue. And because of that, for the past 12 years, she's got two main burdens. A burden called poverty and a burden called the law. She's got a burden called poverty because she spent everything she had on the disease and the cure, much to zero avail. But she also has the burden of the law. You see, the Mosaic law is an issue for her because she's menstruating. Leviticus 15 says that that, that she can't touch anyone. No one can touch her. Uh, When a woman is having her period, that's what happens. But she's had it for 12 straight years. So she's really treated like a leper. She can't come within 150 feet of someone. She can't touch anyone. No one can touch her. And when she comes in contact with anyone, she has to say, unclean in the area, unclean in the area. And she wants to touch the rabbi, but if she touches the rabbi, he too is going to be made unclean. Now, what she has is not a sin issue. Let me be very clear about that. But as I'm looking at this, i got to ask myself a question. How many times is it that I don't want to go to Jesus because I think I'm unclean? I mean, we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and he cleanses us, past, present, and future, boom. But when we screw up, And whatever that thing may be, we're afraid to go to Jesus. We're like, okay, I'm just going to go do something good to to make amends for what I did. I'll go wash a cat. I'll do something important in life to make, make, make myself look good in front of Jesus. And Jesus is going, are you kidding me? It's like we put Jesus in a swivel seat. You know, he's in that swivel chair, and we think when, when we screw up, he, he turns around and says, talk to the nail pierced hand till you clean yourself up. And that is not Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. That's not how Jesus works. Because, see, Jesus has a burden, too, and it's the burden of love. Jesus' burden is a burden of love. His love for us is not predicated on our last screw-up or how great we're doing. His love is constant and unconditional for us. And this woman says, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be healed. And at great risk, she reaches out to touch Jesus, but here's the thing. She's got faith. She's got conviction, but what she's going to do is a touch and run. She's like, okay, I'm going to touch, and I'm booking out of here. Life will be good. Verses 29 through 31, look what happens. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said, you see the crowd pressing in on you? 
and you say, who touched me? This word immediately, it occurs more than 40 times in this gospel because this, this gospel's about action. And immediately she touches Jesus and she's healed, yet Jesus feels the power go out of him. Back in 2002, uh, at that time I was a lieutenant colonel in the army. I was stationed in South Korea. Uh, I was uh, the chief of staff of an organization called the United Nations Command Military Armistice Commission. Uh, it's called UNCMAC. You try to put it on a business card, it just doesn't fit. And we were, our job, my job was to lead a bunch of people who would have negotiations, if you will, with the North Korean People's Army when there was an armistice violation because it was a time of armistice. He had the demilitarized zone, and so if there was an armistice violation, me or my team, our members would go and we'd talk to the North Koreans about it. Well, it seemed that peace was breaking out on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, South Korea and North Korea had signed a really cool treaty that would open up two highways on either side of the peninsula. And what those highways would do is they'd link up two centers where people on either side could meet their families. They'd been separated for more than five decades because of the armistice and because of the war. So it was pretty cool. There was one issue, and the issue was 10,000 landmines on either side where those corridors were being built. So Ishmael here got the, the fun mission to go over to the east corridor out in the middle of nowhere, and I was assigned to a, a special or a Republic of Korea, South Korean infantry unit. And our job was just to get rid of the landmines. It was literally a blast. And so... <laughs> What happens is, when, when you get rid of land, you combat vets here get, us, get this, when you're in combat, you, you get explosions, and when you feel that explosion, the concussion rocks you. And so we're blowing up the, these landmines all over the place, and, and at first, you know, the, the concussions rock you, they do rent control on your bowels, but then after a while, you get used to it. There's a theological point to this, stay with me. Back to this woman. She touches Jesus, just, the, just his clothes, just his cloak, and she's rocked. It's like dynamite has gone off because Jesus says, my power has left me. The Greek word for power is dynamos. It's where we get the word dynamite. And so it's a cool picture of this woman just saying, I, she's, she's being brave, she's being courageous, I gotta get healed. She touches, Voof. I'm healed. And then Jesus, though, Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched my garment? Who touched me? And the disciples were like, come on, Rabbi, you gotta be kidding me. We, you got hundreds of people around you, you're saying, who touched me? No, Jesus had to know who touched him. Because see, this girl's significant. This person's significant. No one is insignificant in Jesus' eyes. Not a single person is insignificant in Jesus' eyes. He had to know who touched her or who touched him. You are significant in Jesus' eyes. No matter what mess you're in in your life, no matter how unclean you may feel, you are significant in Jesus' life, in, in Jesus' life. So think about this. She touches him and he loses power. He had to lose power so she could gain it. She had spent all of her resources, everything she had, to get life, but still didn't get life. Jesus gave all of his resources, particularly his blood and his life, so we could have life, eternal life. You see, she mattered to Jesus, and we do too. Who touched me? I've got to know who touched me. So two things are happening here. Jesus has to know who touched him. And then secondly, he's gonna make her go public with her faith. Look what happens next, verses 32 through 34. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She went public with her faith. 
And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. She's shaking and trembling because as a Jewish woman, she knows now she's made the rabbi unclean. She's expecting a rabbi reprimand. But look how Jesus responds. He responds with the Lord's love. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. When was the last time? When was the last time she had heard someone in religious authority refer to her lovingly as daughter? Probably never. She mattered to Jesus. So do you, and so do I. And I'm looking at this, and as I said, this is not about a sin issue that she has. She has a medical issue. But I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, we all have a disease. We really do. Today, my, my grandson is nine months old. In my eyes, he is perfect. I mean, he's amazing. He's got amazing parents. He's got amazing and humble grandparents. <laughs> and the grandparents on the other side are great people. We love them. Just, and so we're trying to provide the best environment for this little guy. But here's the thing. Let's say when he turns two, I put a big cookie in front of him, and I put a bag of chips, because I, I don't know if he's going to go for the cookie or the chips. Haven't figured that out yet. And I say, Case, don't touch either one of those and I walk out of the room, guess what he's gonna do? He's gonna chow down on one or both of them, probably on both of them since he's got the McCormick blood in him. And here's my point. No one's innocent. No one's born innocent. We're all born with this sin nature. And that's why we need Jesus in our lives. He comes in and he cleanses us. He dries up that proverbial blood so we can walk in unison with him. And now what he does is he wants to develop us Sometimes God disciplines us. He always loves us as we work in tandem with him. We thank him for his forgiveness and his grace, and we work with this thing called flesh, the temptations of this world, and the ugliness as well as the beauty of this world. Jesus dries up the blood of sin and gives us the dynamo, the dynamite, the power that we need to be men and women, children of the Most High God. So back to this woman, don't miss this. She responds to her issue with faith. And folks, just as God sees our secret acts of sin, he sees our secret acts of faith. It's so true that when, when we're standing with character, honor, and integrity, trying to do what's right when no one is around, he sees that. When people are smashing at us, yelling at us, banging on our reputation, yet we're praying for them, saying, God, please, please, help my, my friend, help my enemy. And we're praying for our enemies. We're praying for those who would hurt us. We're praying for a broken world. We're doing something about a broken world where, where no one can see us doing it except God. He sees that. He sees the secret acts of faith. And he sees this very courageous woman because again, in that society, and, and as a Hebrew Jewish woman, she should have gotten a rabbi reprimand. And she reaches out and Jesus heals her. Your faith, daughter, has made you well. And we can stop right there. I mean, sermon done. Let's put up the logo, the closing logo slide there. Boom, yeah, look at that. Okay, don't leave. Please don't leave. There's more to this sermon. Just getting started. Here's the thing. I'm looking at this because it's a mic drop moment. She's healed, everything's good. But what about our man Jairus? I mean, I'm saying, wait a second, this is a ripoff for Jairus. I'm really happy for this bleeding woman. But our man Jairus, I mean, he's, he's got the, his daughter's dying. He's like, I've got to get Jesus to the house. And in his eyes, she butts in front of the line. She didn't know she was butting in front of the line. But that's what he may be thinking. One of my favorite places 
to get ice cream. I won't say the name, but it's in Ferndale and, and Linden, and it's closed on Sundays. And it's frozen manna from the sky. It is so amazing. And so when I go there to get my ice cream, I always get the same thing. I'm in a rut, but it's okay because it's Oreo cookies and cream with nothing but whipped cream, and I get extra whipped cream, and I get extra cherries, and then I chow down. It is so good. And if somebody cuts in front of me, I'm like, hold my hoops, we're throwing down. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about our man Jairus. I mean, he's stuck. He's stuck between the miracle and the mob. All he wants is healing for his little girl. That's all he wants. And he's stuck. She butted in line. It's not fair. And many of you have been in that place before too, probably. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. You're you're in that office that has that opening, and you're qualified for it. You are so qualified. It's going to be a promotion for you. You're so excited. Everybody says, oh, you're a shoe in you're a shoe in And then this other person pops in, and they get it, and you're stuck between the miracle and the mob. You're stuck in the waiting room called life. Your whole church goes to a marriage retreat while your spouse permanently retreats from your marriage. Or you go to the chemo ward, every single week you're showing up at the chemo ward, and in your chemo ward, they ring that bell. When, when it's your last week, they ring the cowbell, they bring balloons, sometimes they'll bring cake, and, you're, and you hear that and you're like, that's not me. It's not gonna be me. Because I got session after session after session, and I'm stuck between the miracle and the mob. Folks, when you're stuck between the miracle and the mob, it's essential that you wait forward. When we're stuck between the miracle and the mob, we need to wait forward. What do I mean by waiting forward? Waiting with anticipation that God will act, that he is a good, good father, that he is sovereign over whatever we're doing, that he has the ability to heal on this side of eternity, and sometimes he does. But sometimes he says no because he's under no obligation to work the way we think we should, he should, because he's God and we're not. It, waiting forward means waiting with faith and conviction. When I was in seminary, I loved studying Greek. I, I'm a geek, and, and I, I just own it. But I really love su- studying Greek because uh, Koine Greek, which is what the, the New Testament is written in, has so many cool nuances with the words, and our English words just don't grasp a lot of it. And there's a specific word that literally means wait forward. And the word is prosdecami, prosdecami. It means to wait forward. That's, that's all it is, to wait with anticipation that God is going to act. Let me give you a couple examples in the New Testament where that happens. Jesus is eight days old, and, and his mom and stepdad, Mary and Joseph, they take him to the temple to be dedicated. He shows up at the temple, and, and there's this old guy there named Simeon. Now, Simeon had been told years upon years upon years before, years before, that he is going to see the Messiah, that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. And he's holding Jesus in his arms, and it's like, oh, man, I can die a happy man. I've seen the Messiah. He does a prophecy over over Jesus and over Mary. The prophecies would come true. He's waiting forward, prosdecami, waiting with anticipation that God is going to act. Fast forward to Luke 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus basically tells us through the disciples 
that we should be waiting like good servants for the master to come home from the wedding banquet. And when he comes home from the wedding banquet, he's going to open the doors, and we've got to be ready. We've got to wait forward. We've got to prosdecamai. When we're in the waiting room called life, we need to be strong in the waiting and diligent in the watching. And what that means, we have to wait with faith and conviction that God is who he says he is, that he is a good, good father and he is sovereign. And he will bring something out of whatever the mess is that we're in. And it takes conviction and it takes faith and it takes focus. If you're in a waiting room called life right now, if you're stuck between the miracle and the mob, let me ask you a question. What are you focusing on? Where is your focus? Last week, week before last, we've had storms. Boca Raton, watching us online in Florida, we, we really love you, but we're really angry at you right now because it's nice there. But a couple weeks ago, when, before we had the two feet of snow, we had those up to 70 mile an hour winds. And I remember I was driving home along Axton Road, and there are these, these, these huge pine trees. And I'm looking at the pine trees, and branches are breaking off. They're landing in the road. I'm feeling like MacGyver. I'm getting to go around them and over them and stuff. And as I look over at one of these trees, because it's bending over, it's like 100, 150 feet tall, I look, and the trunk is not even moving. So I asked a friend of mine. He's into trees. And, and I said... I said, walk me through how these trees get so strong. He said, no, this specific type of pine tree, it's pretty cool. The, the, the roots go down as, as deep as 100 feet. And the deeper the roots go, the higher it grows. And when it gets in the storms, it causes the roots to go down even deeper. I'm like, oh man, this will preach. This is so cool. And I started thinking about that for this sermon because I was thinking about how so often in life when we're stuck between the miracle and the mob, so often in life when we're, when we're focusing on the circumstances in the waiting room called life, we can be focusing on the wrong thing. We're focusing on the branches, not the root. Jesus is the foundation. He's the root. He says, focus on me. Be convicted. Follow me. I've got you. I've got this. So often in life we overestimate the evil overestimate the circumstances and we underestimate God and what he will do. So he calls on us to act with conviction that God is who he says he is, that he can be trusted. Back to Jairus. His worst fears come to fruition. Look at the next verses. Verses 35 and 36. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. It's like he's saying, Jairus, don't look at the swaying branches, look at the root. Believe. The, the, the tense used here is not a one and done believe and walk away. No, it's believe and believe and believe and keep on believing and don't stop believing in the word of the great theologian Steve Perry. And remember our main point today, in order to wait well, we have to wait for it. It's like he's saying to Jairus, Jairus, you had faith when you came to me. You saw what I did this courageous, bleeding woman, and now have faith in what I'm gonna do for you, but I need you to trust me. I will not be hurried. Folks, too often we put Jesus on our timetable, and he doesn't work by our timetable. He asks us to respond to the waiting periods with faith. And why does he do that? Because faith releases God's power in your life. Faith releases God's power in your life. When you marry faith and conviction, amazing things happen. 
When you marry faith and conviction, you can be in a time of great pain and experience incredible peace. When you marry faith and conviction, you can be in a time of crisis and walk with confidence. When you marry faith and conviction that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do, that he is sovereign over this earth, that Jesus holds all things together, you can walk in a time of turmoil with great trust. But it takes marrying faith and conviction. It takes waiting well and waiting forward. Jairus had just enough faith to get him home. And so Jesus was going to require more of him. Remember, he required more of the bleeding woman. She had to come out and go public with her faith. And he's going to require more of Jairus. He has to understand that Jesus can't be hurried and that Jesus, Jesus is the subject. Verses 37 through 39. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. Pause real quick. In that culture, 2,000 plus years ago, this ancient culture, what would happen is someone would die when they're declared dead. Wailers and mourners would come to the house and set the scene for the grief that would be happening. So the family of the deceased would have to pay for these people to come in. Sounds weird to us because we look at that through Western eyes. But it wasn't weird back then. And so we know the girl is dead because the weepers and wailers are already there. So Jesus shows up, and entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Pastor Bob covered that greatly uh, a few weeks ago, what, what that asleep means. It means death is temporary. That's the short answer. So Jesus brings in his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he did that for a reason. He's going to be showing them in a few weeks in our, in, our, in our teaching, in a few weeks, but at the end of his earthly ministry, before he goes down to Jerusalem, he's going to bring Peter and James and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration so they can get a glimpse of his glory. They've got to see his glory. And the reason why they got to see his glory is they're going to go through some really tough times. They're going to be the leaders of the church. So he brings them in. He's already shown them that he's, he has power over nature. Pastor Bob covered that last week. If you didn't see that sermon, by the way, you need to take a look at it because he really talks through what it means to go through the storms of life. He's shown them that he has power over demonic forces. Now he's going to show them that he has ultimate power and ultimate authority, and that ultimate power and authority is over death itself. Look what happens next, verses 40, 41. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother. Hang on just a second. The whole time Jairus has been referred to as a synagogue official. All of a sudden, he's got a title as father, as dad. He took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Gum which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Don't miss this point. He did something that's very, very important. They're going through one of the most horrific times in their life, and Jesus put out those who were ignorant of God. He put them to the side. When you're going through a valley experience, when you're in that prolonged waiting period, when you're stuck between the miracle and the mob, you need to be very careful who your closest people are around you. Make sure there are people who can speak truth and love 
I had a friend of mine back in 2007. She had cancer. Amazing lady. Lori had the most faith of any woman I have ever known. She was in her early 40s. If you could put uh, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham together, Mother Graham, Billy Teresa, I don't know what that would be, but she'd have more faith than that. I mean, it was amazing. She had fought cancer over and over and over, over many years, and she was done. And so she said, I'm done. She and her husband had prayed about it. They had great peace. She only had a handful of months left to live. And people from her church came over and twisting scripture, they said that she had cancer because she didn't have enough faith. That she had cancer and and was quitting the fight because it was a faith issue. And because they didn't boundary that, they caused great pain. Wisely, because she was a woman of great faith, she lovingly said, you know guys, I appreciate that. I disagree with what you're saying. Bye. And they left. But it wrecked her kids. Be very careful about the boundaries you set up when you're going through that valley experience. So he, he, he brings in Peter, James, and John because he's gonna counsel them. He brings in the mom and dad because he's gonna comfort them. And he looks at the girl and he takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kum. Talitha, it's a, it's a pet name. I, I call my girls, my girls are in their mid-20s, they're married, I, I call them Lil Goose still. I'm like, hey, Lil Goose, let's go, hey, kiddo. That's what Talitha is. It's a, it's a pet name. Kum doesn't mean be resurrected, child. It's not like he's standing all formal in front of her. He's grabbing her by the hand the way Jesus does in such a cool way and says, hey, kiddo, let's go. It's just time to go. It's like you're late for school. We gotta get going. And I started thinking about this. What's so cool about this story is how he takes her by the hand in her worst moment and he does the same for you, and he does the same for me. And he won't let go of that hand. Even if we're, we're, we're saying, let go of my hand, I don't, I don't want you around, he won't let go. No, you could, have, you could have stopped all this pain and suffering from happening, but you didn't. Let go of my hand and he won't because he's the good shepherd and he refuses to let anything, anyone, be taken from the palm of his hands. Death, tribulation principalities, powers of darkness, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He holds on our hands in our worst moments and he refuses to let go. Is that amazing or what? I'm looking at this and I'm going, that's amazing, but God didn't do that. In fact, when Jesus was at his worst hour, on the cross, he's screaming, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was in that swivel chair. And he was saying, hey boy, you're on your own, talk to the hand. But he did that out of love. Jesus had to take on all of the sin of the world, past, present, and future. And he had to have that separation from God the Father, the only time it would ever happen. So he could come to us and say, I've been there, done that. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never let go of your hand. You are my son. You are my daughter because you've received me as your Savior and your Lord. He lost hold of the Father's hand so we would know he always has our hand, especially in our darkest hour. Let's wrap this up. Verses 42 to 43. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old and immediately... They were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Immediately, there's that action. 
He didn't want people to know about it because he didn't want to be Sideshow Billy. He did not want this to be another magic show. And he goes from the miraculous to the very practical. Talitha kum. Come on, kiddo, get up. We got stuff to do. To, hey, make sure she gets something to eat. And you may be sitting here today going, this is a great story. I appreciate it. I really appreciate uh, the story. God didn't heal my wife. God didn't heal my husband. God didn't heal my child. I get choked up because I know your stories. I love being a pastor in this church because I know your stories. And so many of you right now are going through hell and it breaks my heart. And all I can do is encourage you to hang on to Jesus because he's the only hope that can get you through this time. And here's the beauty about Jesus. He promises to heal either on this side of eternity or the next. He will always bring beauty out of ashes. He just asked for us to hold on to him because he ain't letting go of us. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, this said these words. He said, this story doesn't mean that God must always rescue his people from danger or heal every affliction. It means he holds ultimate authority, that he has the power, the dinamos, the dynamite, to blow it out of proportion, and he's gonna do it on this side or the other side. We gotta trust him. Therefore, we cannot fear, especially as we wait forward. God's got the vantage point we don't. He sees it all happening because he's timeless. We can't. We can't impose our standards on a loving, powerful, amazing, timeless God. And I get stuck in the weeds in this story, and I think it's a story about healing, so I gotta pull back to that 30,000-foot level. And when I pull back to the 30,000-foot level, I gotta remember that this really isn't a story about healing as much as it is something else. You see, go to John chapters three and John chapters four. There's two people that resemble Jairus and this courageous, anonymous, bleeding woman. It's a guy named Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus is, ooh, he's a religious official of power, wealth, and influence. And he comes to Jesus because he needs to have some answers to some questions. And right after that, right after that, Jesus talks to a woman who's been shunned by all of her people, the woman at the well. And you look at those four characters, they all got the same thing in common. They're spiritually bankrupt, just like us. You see, we try to fill our lives with all the junk of this world. I gotta get more degrees, I gotta get a nicer house, I gotta get a nice car, I gotta, and fill in the blank for whatever that thing may be. We may be trying to fill our hearts with things that are good. None of those things are really bad when they're put in proportion, put in perspective. But as we fill the, ourselves with the junk of this world, it doesn't matter how religious we are, it doesn't matter how immoral we are, we're, it's a level playing field in front of the cross. And what Jesus calls on us to do is just simply receive him. If we say with our lips and believe in our heart that he is Savior and he is Lord, we will be saved. And then we walk with him in tandem 
with him. And he never, never lets go of our hands, especially at our worst hour. All right, I want to give you guys a challenge before we roll out of here. Here's your challenge. As you pray, when you're going through that that waiting period, when you're stuck between the miracle and the mob, as you pray, are you willing to wait forward and not hurry Jesus? Are you willing to wait forward and not hurry Jesus? He will act. Wait with anticipation. Prosdekamai. Wait well. Wait forward. Skagit, I love you guys. Turn you over to Pastor Brian. Thank you for being part of our, our great church in Skagit. Boca Raton in Florida, we're jealous and we still love you guys. Those of you watching online uh, all around the world, thank you so much for watching and being with us.